Good morning, church. Uh, man, I, uh, first of all, my name is Trent Whitley. I see a lot of new, new faces that I haven't seen before, so I, I want to introduce myself. I, I'm Trent Whitley. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Sulphur Community Church, and uh, we're thankful that you're here with us this morning. I'm thankful because I haven't been able to actually preach in a church for, oh man, it's been since probably March or so. So I'm, I'm thankful to be back with you guys today. But for those who are viewing online, we're thankful for you. We're thankful that you're able to tune in with us today too. And we hope that soon, very soon, that we would be able to gather again completely together. This is still a, a strange thing for me, a strange setup here. But uh, nevertheless, we're able to, to continue to share the gospel and we're able to, to move forward. So uh, today we'll be continuing walking through our series called The Crushed Head and the bruised heel. And what we're trying to do with this series is walk from Genesis to Revelation and show all of the scriptures, uh, not completely, not comprehensively, but to show major themes and major stories throughout the scriptures of God's redemptive plan for mankind, God's redemptive plan in bringing Jesus Christ and saving those through Jesus. And so, uh, if you could, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5 this morning. That's where we're going to be, starting in verse 1. And so uh, this is the same narrative that we see in three different places in the Scriptures. We see it in Matthew, we see it in Mark, and we see it in Luke. And so if you were here way back when we first started, uh, when Sulphur Community Church was, uh, was meeting in the library at LeBlanc Middle School, we went through the book of Mark. And what I remember from Mark is that he was very direct and very concise in many of his writings. He was very to the point in a lot of his things. And, and for this particular text today that we're going through, Matthew was also the same way, very direct in what, in what he did. So we'll, we'll gather some additional context from there. We'll gather some additional things as we go from, from Matthew and from Mark. But mostly today, we're going to be following a more descriptive narrative in the book of Luke. And so that's why we're walking through the book of Luke today. So uh, last week we walked through Jesus' temptation in the desert when, uh, when we saw Jesus, the, the second Adam, seeing straight through the lies of Satan and combating those lies with truth from God's word. That's how, that's how he did those things. When Satan would approach him with something, he would combat that with truth from, from God's word. And, and the scriptures say in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, from Jesus, until an opportune time. We know when that opportune time will be, uh, when Jesus is, is on the cross. But for now, uh, Jesus returns to this area near his hometown, uh, Galilee. And this is where we're going to see Jesus' ministry begin and Jesus' ministry uh, start. And so immediately, Jesus began teaching in the synagogues. And overall, people were absolutely amazed by his teaching. Also, at the same time, he was casting out demons and he was healing people and he was doing many miraculous works. And so when your teaching is unprecedented, when you're healing people and when you're driving out demons, when you're doing all of these things, you tend to gather this following. This crowd started to gather around him. And uh, so we see that these crowds were following him obsessively to the point where they were trying to forcefully keep him to themselves. And so Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 4, it gives us a picture of that. In verse 42, it says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him. 
and would have kept him from leaving there. But he said to them, I, much, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so this gives us a picture of Jesus' purpose here. His purpose was to preach the good news of God's kingdom that would be ushered in ultimately through him. And then it gives us an understanding of the crowd situation that we just talked about. These people who are, who are marveling at Jesus' works and who are highly motivated to keep him to themselves. They want Jesus to themselves. And so this context kind of brings us to the text that we're at today in Luke chapter 5. And so let's start by reading verse 1. We'll go verse 1 through 3 first. It says, On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out from them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So the scene is the lake of Gennesaret, and we see in Matthew and in Mark that they say the Sea of Galilee. This is basically the same body of water. Luke is describing the area of land that's actually around the body of water, but it's the same thing that we're talking about. Sea of Galilee, Lake of Gennesaret, same, same sea. And so he saw two boats. We, want, we learned that one boat is Simon Peter's boat, and we learn from the other Gospels that Andrew... His brother was also a partner with him on his boat, and so he was in his boat. And we see another boat that belonged to James and to John, the sons of Zebedee. And so we, when we see Jesus, uh, when Jesus sees these, these fishermen, these people who are fishing, they're actually washing their nets on the shore. They had, they had just been out all night long fishing. And for those who are not familiar with fishing, nighttime, especially when it's hot, is the prime time to fish. So I just got back from Toledo Bend this weekend. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to do a whole lot of night fishing. We did some other fishing. But uh, if you know about fishing, it's difficult to catch fish in the shallow water during the day, uh, especially when it's hot, because they like to move into deeper water. Uh, when, when the water actually starts to heat up, fish move into deeper water because uh, when, when water actually heats up, it, it depletes the water of its oxygen. And so the fish can't breathe. They have to move down into deeper water. Uh, but at night, especially during the summer, fish come up into the shallow flats. They come up into the shallows to feed. And so that's when these guys would go out and fish. Um, and also, unlike my Toledo Bend experiences, unlike the things that I would have been able to do there, these guys are not fishing with a small diameter fishing line. They're fishing with nets. They're using nets. And so night is when fish are, are in shallow water and when they can't see the fibers of the net. They can't see the things that, that they're trying to trap them with. And so night fishing is prime. That's when you want to go fishing. And so, this, uh, so we'll, we'll, see how, we'll see how that turns out in a second. We'll see that Peter was completely unsuccessful the night before when he went fishing. And so let's get back to the crowd. This crowd is following Jesus and, and is getting in his space. And so he approach, uh, approaches Simon Peter. Of course, he's got a purpose for that. But understand, this is probably not the first time that Jesus has met Simon Peter. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 38 shows us that Jesus had actually gone into Simon's house before this and had taken away a fever from his mother-in-law. His mother-in-law was, was sick with a fever, and Jesus had gone and taken away that fever. So Simon Peter had already seen Jesus' power over sickness, and Jesus is going to reveal much more to him today through this. 
And so Jesus gets into his boat, he pulls away from the land, and he uses, what, he uses the best microphone that he can possibly find at the time, the water, to, pre, to be able to project his voice. And so he gets in the boat, he uses the water at a, at a distance from the crowd to be able to teach the crowd from a distance. And so Luke doesn't actually tell us in this account what he taught. We don't, we don't know what Jesus taught in that particular instance. But he just goes directly into the main point, what happens next in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 7. Let's read that. It says, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. So after Jesus has finished teaching, he addresses Simon directly. He goes to Simon, and he says, go to the deep, put out your nets, and you will catch. You are going to have a catch. You will be successful. To put this into perspective, Jesus is telling these professional fishermen, these guys who do this for a living every day, who have been out all night to put their highly visible nets into the deepest part of the water, the, the most difficult part of the water to catch fish, and he's guaranteeing that they will have success. And so we can see how Simon Peter responds, right? Like he, he, can't, he can't tell exactly how this is going to work. He says, we told all night last night, Jesus, you don't understand. He's, and we took nothing. But then we see him call him master, which translates to officer or commander in the Greek. And so we see next uh, that Peter says, we took nothing last night, but at your word. I will let down the nets. At your word, I will let down the nets. So we already see this Peter recognizing Jesus' authority. We already see the authority of Jesus being shown through Peter. And so could it be that Simon Peter's attention, uh, that this has gotten Simon Peter's attention because of the way that Jesus worked in his mother-in-law? Maybe, probably. I would think if the, if the Lord would heal my mother-in-law of sickness, that I, would, that I would start to understand kind of what's going on. But what we see mainly is obedience based on belief in what Jesus says, based on the, the belief in what, in what Jesus is going to do. And it would have to be because otherwise these are terrible conditions. This is the most terrible time to go in the most ridiculous place. And so then we see the miracle, right? God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, continues to show his authority and his power over all of creation. The nets, they, they immediately, they fill up with fish. We hear, we hear about that, and we see that, the, that they fill up with so many fish that they have to call their partners. They have to call the ones in the other boat to come over and to help. It's so many fish that the boats actually begin to sink. They're beginning to, to lose uh, their, their buoyancy in the water and beginning to sink. And so I, I don't want us to, to just read through this and, and to just read through the the sections, and, and then just see the facts here. I want us to sit in the moment. Like when you see the miracles of Jesus, I want you to be amazed at what's going on. Try your best to put yourself in the sandals of these people, in the, in the shoes of these fishermen who have just encountered the living God. Try to do that. 
They may not know this yet, but they are witnessing this miracle that, that Jesus Christ, God the Son, participated with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit in creation, right? First of all, so in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he has authority over all of creation because first, he took part in creating all of creation. Second, all things were ultimately created for him, for Jesus Christ. They were created for him. And then third, he is the only one who can allow things that were created to continue to be. He is the sustainer. Without him, everything, everything falls apart. So when he commands fish to go into the net in the middle of the worst fishing conditions ever, they go. He has complete authority over them. And so in the same way that God proclaims his, his power in creation in Genesis, in the same way he proclaims his power over the land and over the animals by sending the plagues in Exodus, and his power over the Red Sea and over the Jordan River as he parts the Red Sea and he parts the Jordan River for the Israelites, and numerous other examples, in the same way that God is doing this, he is working through the full radiance of his glory, his Son, Jesus Christ. So then what happens next? The boats are sinking because they are so loaded down with fish, remember? And this is what we get. In verse 8, we get Peter's response. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So in this crucial moment, they need help with this abundance of fish. They're trying to save their boats, but Peter, all that he can do is fall down at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. We can read implicitly based on verse 10 that Peter responds to the power and the glory of God that he sees like many of those that came before him in the Old Testament and up to this point. He responds in fear. And so what, if you recall, as we briefly saw in Isaiah's calling uh, a couple of weeks ago when we went through Isaiah chapter 6, uh, we'll see that Isaiah had a vision, right? And let's read that really quickly. Uh, if you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 5. It says, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. 
And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah sees the holiness and the glory of the Lord, and he cries out in fearfulness because he sees God's holiness in comparison with his unholiness, with his sin. And so holy is a, is a term that we throw around a lot of times, but I don't think we define it. Holiness, when we're referring to God, is, is God being set apart from us, not like us. He is, he is different than us. He is high and exalted, Isaiah 33, chapter 5 says. And because of this, nothing in creation can match his, his glory and his power and his purity. That's what we talk about when we talk about God's holiness. And so Isaiah recognizes this, this purity and this holiness of God, which allows him to be able to see his uncleanliness, his impurity, his unholiness. And so he's, Isaiah realizes that while God is, is distinct from others, is distinct from everyone else, Isaiah is not distinct from anyone else. He is an unclean man dwelling among unclean people. And that contrast between his holiness and our, hun- our unholiness brings fear. God's law demands that we be holy as he is holy, Leviticus 11 uh, verse 44. But man, since the fall of Adam in the garden, is sinful. We do not uphold God's law. And because of that tension, because of that separation, man trembles in fear when he encounters a holy God. And so for Simon Peter, this is the same, except he's not seeing it in a vision. Instead, he is face to face with the fullness of God in all of his perfection, holiness, and purity, dwelling bodily. He is face to face with Jesus Christ. And so that's what I see first in our text. When we truly encounter Jesus, two things begin to emerge in our lives. We see his holiness and we see our sinfulness. We simultaneously see just how, how holy and how righteous he is and just how unholy and how wicked we are. And through this tension and through this fear, Peter begins this journey to be able to see Jesus for who he really is and also for seeing Peter's true identity for who he really is as a sinner in need of grace. Do we have trouble with this? Do we have trouble with seeing this? Do we have trouble with seeing Jesus for how great and how powerful he is? I think as a whole, that's one of the main issues that I have personally, and I think one of the main issues that we have as the church, uh, specifically the American church, we don't see the glory of God as something to be amazed with. We compartmentalize these Old Testament and these New Testament narratives of miracle after miracle after miracle, these amazing things that God does as just a bunch of stories, a bunch of tales. God does many things throughout the scripture to make sure that we understand that if we are reading it correctly, if we are understanding what he's saying, that these things could not be done by anyone but him. I hope this Crushed Head series, this series that we're going through encompassing the entire Bible, I hope that this has helped you with this. I hope that we can see comprehensively how unique and how unlike us God really is, how mighty he is, how worthy he is of our praise. I hope that we can see that today. And seeing him for who he is in relation to the ugliness of our sin is the only way that we can actually understand our need for a savior. 
Let me ask you, church, when you, when you read the Bible, are you trying to understand the full counsel of the Scriptures? Like, are you trying to understand everything that God is trying to tell you about life and holiness and, and about His Son, Jesus? Or are you just pulling things from different books of the Bible that make you feel good, that make you feel, uh, that make you feel good about what you're doing? When you hear the word preached, does that particular pastor, does he point you toward repentance, toward turning away from your sin and toward following Christ to pursue holiness? Are you concerned with being like Jesus, with conforming to his image like we see in Romans? Or do you place all your faith in maybe an aisle that you walked when you were 12 years old or a prayer that you prayed at that particular time? My goal, and I hope your goal also, I know I don't do this as well as I need to in many, in many aspects, but my goal is that in all that I do to help people to see Jesus clearly and through the lens of the gospel only, through the, through the truths of the gospel, to be able to see ourselves clearly, to walk in repentance with him. And so moving on next, we're going to see how Jesus responds to Peter's and to others' confession of fear. Uh, let's read Luke chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 10, and we'll go through, through verse 11. It says, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So how does Jesus respond? The same message that, that the angel of the Lord communicated to Zechariah and to Mary when he greeted them to tell them about the births of their sons. Uh, John the Baptist, and Jesus. The same message that the angel of the Lord communicated to the shepherds when he greeted them at the birth of Jesus, when they were filled with great fear. Jesus sees Simon Peter's fear, he sees the fear that he has, and he immediately dispels it. He says, do not fear. He commands Peter immediately, he says, do not be afraid. And through this, Jesus shows that he is pursuing Peter. This is great news. This is great news for Peter. Jesus doesn't depart from him as he requested. Jesus presses in on him more. He presses in more. And what a glorious God we serve that would know us as well as he does and would still choose to pursue us. He knows everything about us, but he chooses to pursue us, to bring us to himself, and to make us like him. This is abhorrent to other religions, to other worldviews, to other things that go on. Why would the holy and the mighty one pursue the weak and the feeble? Why would, why would God in heaven send his son to pursue the weak and the unholy? These are difficult questions for our minds to fathom. These are difficult things for us to think about. But his word tells us that, all, that this thing is true. And, and for some reason, he loves us enough to send his son to die on the cross that we may experience life with him forever. He loves us this way. He loves us like this. The Apostle Paul pours out praise when he thinks of this in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We have been chosen and we have been blessed, and it's not by anything that we have done, but because God was merciful to us. God gave us his grace 
But not only that, brothers and sisters, Jesus' purpose is not only to reveal, uh, to reveal his power to them and then to leave them to fend for themselves and to leave them to be on their own and to process things, but he calls them specifically for a purpose. He changes their perspective and calls them for a purpose. He calls them from their old life and from their old profession to a new life with a new purpose, with a new goal. He says, from now on, you will be catching men, or you will be fishers of men. He says, you'll no longer be concerned with going out, catching fish every day, bringing them to the market, trying to sell them, cleaning up your nets, getting everything done, and then starting the day over with. You're no longer to be concerned with that. And with this, and with this Jesus is going to help them to take part in ushering in the kingdom of heaven by calling men and women, just like us, to repentance, and to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is doing here. And with this, Jesus has called his first disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John. These guys will accompany him on the greatest movement in the history of the world. And their response was completely appropriate. It was the completely correct response when you see Jesus for who he is and when he calls you to go. It says, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So when we encounter Jesus, first we see him rightly in relationship to ourselves. We see his holiness and our unholiness, and it calls us to repentance. But second, when we encounter Jesus and when we see him rightly, he calls us on mission with him. He calls us to him on mission. So we're not just left where we are, but we are deployed to take part in his mission the disciples would sit under Jesus' teaching throughout his ministry. Jesus would equip them for what was to come and would reveal himself more and more and more and more to them as he went along. And ultimately, Jesus would be crucified on the cross, which was God's plan from creation in order to redeem mankind. And after his resurrection, he would appear, he would appear to these same men. And he would show them their purpose. He would show them where he was sending them and what he was about to do with them. And, it said, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see this mission being fulfilled through the book of Acts and throughout church history and all the way to today. We see this mission continuing to be fulfilled and it will continue to be fulfilled. And so this was the commission to them. And this is also our purpose now. This is also our purpose in life now. If you're a Christian here, your purpose is for God to receive glory on earth as he does in heaven. That's how we pray in the Lord's Prayer, that, you would, that he would receive glory on earth as it is in heaven. And how do we do this? We make disciples. How do you make disciples? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them the word of the Lord, teaching them to do all of the things that Jesus has commanded them. That's our purpose. That's our purpose in life. Jesus doesn't tell us much about the day or the hour he's going to return, but he does give us a definitive statement about what the gospel is going to do on this earth. He says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
So overall, our purpose is to go and to make disciples until all nations proclaim the gospel of Christ. And so we put emphasis on world mission here, obviously. I'm praying that some of us within our church body, some of us, some of you that I see here, some of us that are tuning in here, would answer that call to go. I'm praying that we would be called to reach unreached peoples with the gospel of Jesus, people who have never even heard the name of Jesus. Maybe, uh, maybe those people within, uh, within the 1040 window that we talk about in North Africa and in Asia, where people have literally never heard the name of Jesus before. We want to see churches planted around the world for the glory of Christ. And we see that commission here. But I also pray for those of you who God will call to a different city or to a different profession. A person who understands God's word, who uses their, their gifts and their, and their skillfulness, who, who finds places where they can proclaim the gospel and inserts themselves into those situations. I pray for you, even if this job or this location is a, is a less desirable one, even if it's one that, that offers less money or doesn't give you the benefits that you had before, I pray that you would step into those situations if you see that Christ is calling you to those situations. And I pray for those of you that God's going to keep right here where you are. I pray for you, if you're struggling with seeing your purpose in this area that you live, in your recreational activities, in your friendships, and in your jobs through the mission of the gospel, if you can't see those things through the lens of the gospel, I pray that you would be able to receive clarity through that. I pray that you would be able to see these things with an understanding that Jesus is our purpose. Friends, God is not concerned only with taking our stuff away and with making us do some of the things that we don't want to do. He is going a step further than that. He's shifting our perspectives. He is reorienting our identities completely. We, are, we identify as Christ now. He wants us not only to give sacrificially and to love our neighbor when it's difficult. He wants us to not only do that, but to do this joyfully as his redeemed, because of what he has done for us, to forsake everything for his name. And he does this first for his glory, right? So that, so that by the proclamation of his word and by the testimony of our lives, when people see our lives, others will be redeemed for his sake and will orient their worship to God, who deserves all of the praise, who deserves everyone's praise. And so that's it. That's first what we do this for. We do this for his glory. But then second... It's for our good. God receiving glory from all of his creation is the greatest joy that we could ever receive. It's the greatest thing that we could ever do in this life. We have bought into this lie that this is not true. That, that we can produce our own joy by filling our lives with these menial things that we like to do on a daily basis. But ask anybody that's been in a quarantine from the coronavirus that was able to do whatever they wanted to do for a month or two months. These things are shallow. These things don't give us joy. They're temporary. They don't satisfy us. We were made to worship God. That is our purpose. Our purpose is to worship God. And if these things don't point us toward worshiping God, they're useless. So we were made to worship God, but in the words of John Piper, missions exist because worship doesn't. So that's why we're on mission. We're on mission because people are not worshiping God and we want them to worship God. 
We are called to reorient our lives, our finances, our relationships, our dreams, our aspirations, everything that we see in this world in order to see that our brothers and sisters and those in the world that are going to be redeemed, that they would, that would be able to bring the ultimate joy and satisfaction to themselves, and that's by worshiping God, by bringing Him glory. That's what we're here to do. And if this is for if this is for his glory and if it's for our good, then why are we, why am I specifically so resistant to following the commands of Jesus? Why am I resistant to following him when I see, when I see these things in his word? And why am I resistant to making my life a living sacrifice for him? Well, first, could it be that materialism, this, this thing that we do to, to be able to obtain goods, this materialism, could it be that that's an easier and a more immediate gratification? We can gratify the cravings of our sinful nature immediately if we get these things. It feels good in the moment, so it must be good, right? It's so fun to get that package in the mail or to buy that new thing, right? It's what we're being told to do daily by our culture, to, to save up that money, to buy that boat, to get in that bigger house, to work that job as hard as we can so that we can retire as quickly as possible. And I'm not saying these things in themselves are bad things. But as I said before, these things are just temporary. They're so temporary. What if we could reorient our minds to process things as either temporary or eternal? What if we could value the eternal things, like the glory of God, the sacrifice that we can make for others, the sharing, uh, our sharing of the gospel with others? What if, we could, what if we could value these eternal things above the shallow and temporary things that are just going to go away? I have this quote on my computer screen at work. It's a pretty, pretty popular quote, but it, it helps me. It's a little sticky note at the bottom of my, of, of my computer every day, and it helps me to kind of see through this perspective every day. It, it's by uh, Jim Elliott. He was... He was a, a martyred missionary who was uh, trying to reach the, uh, the unreached peoples in Ecuador in the 1950s. And what he said was, uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so in other words, the temporary, the, the, the things that we have on this earth are just cheap. The joy that we receive from that is cheap. If you want greater and more joy, then focus on the eternal. Focus on the eternal things, the things that we can't see on this earth, but the things that matter. And why else do we have a problem following this? Why else do we have a problem doing things this way? Because second, the gospel bids us to come and die. It's a difficult thing. That's hard. Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 23, later on in, in the same book that we're in right now, Jesus says, it says, Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's difficult. Deny yourself. Putting others before you. You want to see how difficult that is? Just ask any parents in the room that are having to put their children before their, their needs every day. It's difficult. We don't do it well. We don't do it well all the time. But Christianity calls us to constantly put ourselves before others. Put, put others <laughs> before ourselves. Whew, man. Uh, so denying yourself. Take up your cross daily. Literally taking up an instrument of torture 
daily. Literally a, a willingness to die in pursuit of obedience to Christ, in pursuit of what Christ calls us to do. A willingness to die for that. And then following him. This path that we tried to create on our own, this path that we tried to, to, to run on our own is reoriented. It's facing a different direction. It goes in a different way. Because Jesus is the one who commands where we go. He is the one who tells us what we do, and we obediently follow him. He's reorienting our lives. So now people who are not believers, people who are either watching this, maybe you're in this room that are, that are not a believer in Jesus, they're like, what? Why would, I, why would I do that? Why would I want to lay all of my dreams and my desires down at the feet of Jesus? Why would I want to literally follow him into death if that's the result of being obedient to him? Why would I want to do that? Because he's worth it. That's why. Because he's worth it. There are countless testimonies from the scriptures and throughout history that testify to how temporary our life is, to how temporary the things in this life, all the pleasures that we have are, who testify to the joy that's found in pursuing Christ above all else. When we pursue Christ above all else and any hardships that may come with that. Most importantly, I pray that you would read the scriptures. I pray that you would see those that are encountering various trials and rejoicing that they are being able to, count, to be counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. These people are joyful in their sufferings. They're joyful in the difficult times because the eternal is better than the temporary. Also, another thing I've been doing lately is reading a lot of... Uh, biographies of certain people. I, I like reading biographies for some reason. I guess I'm boring. But uh, I, I like to read biographies of those who gave their lives for, for the spread of the gospel. And when you read through these books, they're just entrenched with, with joy, with this hopefulness that they have in eternity where they'll be able to be with Christ forever. They see things like that even when they're on earth and they give their lives to fulfill God's purposes. They gave their lives for the eternal and they cry out to us to do exactly the same thing. So just a reminder, who do we look to? Who do we look to when we're trying to focus on this? Remember, we take our example from Jesus Christ, who fulfilled God's purposes perfectly. And I don't think it's going to be difficult to see today, or, or even throughout the rest of the text, because these disciples are boneheads. Uh, in a lot of ways, but the goal is not to, to follow the disciples. They are definitely not the heroes in this narrative. In fact, if you remember from our study of John, after Jesus was crucified, Peter actually went back to fishing. He went back to the only thing that he knew. He went back to fishing. He was done until Jesus graciously appeared to him again and sent him. And so our hope today, brothers and sisters, is Jesus he has shown his grace to us. He has called us to himself. He's allowed us to be able to participate in his mission that would bring us the utmost joy and that would bring him glory. Praise him today. Let's pray. God, I, uh, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word this morning. Lord, I pray that... Uh, God, that as we search the scriptures and as we hear the testimonies of, of those who have taken the gospel calling seriously, 
who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel and have counted it joy. Lord, will we see that and will we marvel at that? But also, will we be challenged in that way? Will we see the the mercy and the grace that you have poured out on us at the cross? Sinners undeserving of your grace. Sinners who were in need of a Savior. And Christ, you came. And you did that by submitting yourself to be nailed to a cross. So Father, our, our hope today is in you completely. Not in our things. Not in the stuff we own. Not in our jobs. Not in our neighborhoods. Not in our relationships. Our hope is in you. Help us to see that clearly. Help us to see your goodness and your holiness and your grace and let that propel us to proclaiming your gospel no matter what it takes. Father, thank you for using the fishermen of the world, people like us, to proclaim such a profound message truth. Father, let us worship you today as we see that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.